What I want to do to start off is I want to start off with an exercise. We usually don't start off with exercises, so I'm excited about this. Um, I want everyone to close your eyes. They may say, well, I usually close my eyes later in the sermon. That's fine. We'll go ahead and just get it out of the way here. Um, so close your eyes. Take about 10, 15 seconds. I want you to picture Jesus. So actually, close your eyes and picture what it is you imagine Jesus to be, who it is to look like. We'll take about 10, 15 awkward seconds. What does he look like? Who is it that you imagine? You can open your eyes now. I would imagine for most people, when we picture Jesus, the Jesus that we picture is a pre-resurrection, pre-ascension, pre-returning Jesus. One that often we see in movies or maybe in paintings, um, and it may or may not be kind of true to who he really was, because Jesus was, remember, born and raised in the Middle East. He was Jewish, so he wasn't blonde hair, blue-eyed, wasn't Caucasian, wasn't American, surprisingly. Um, he didn't speak perfect English and have perfect, long, blowing, and uh, beautiful hair. His robe wasn't spotless white like his was the only robe in Israel that didn't get any dirt on it. Um, he was Middle Eastern. He was in the first century. And often, I think, we let um, images, whether it be from movies or media or art, shape how it is we view Jesus. And when we think of him, we, whether or not we think of him like that, we often run to the humanity of Jesus and what he was like in the Gospels, and his, uh, particularly in his three years in his public ministry. But listen, one of the things I think that could be unfair about that, both to Jesus and to our lives, is we run to the humanity of Jesus. And that's what we imagine. It's who we worship, and that's absolutely natural. That's easier for us to handle. And it's easier for us to grasp. We can go, I, okay, I can understand how he was a human, because I'm a human. That's easier for us to be able to come to terms with. Right? And God wants us to be able to relate to Jesus. Goodness, he related to us. That's the whole point of the condescension when Jesus became incarnate and was, in fact, um, a man. He understands our weaknesses. He's been through our sorrows. He's a sympathetic high priest. Absolutely. So my concern is not that we think about Jesus in his humanity, but that for many of us, we only think about Jesus in his humanity. And if we aren't careful, we can begin to treat Jesus like we do a buffet. Say Golden Corral, a phenomenal establishment if you haven't been there. And in buffets, we go and we take the bits that we like. We take the shrimp or the wonderful chocolate fountain that's there. And we'll pass by the more kind of gross, spinachy parts of the buffet. And friends, listen to me. My, my concern is that for many of us, that's how we treat Jesus. We walk through and we pick out the bits that we like, and then we'll kind of leave the parts that, oh, that's not so much my taste. It's a little bit too green for me. But we don't have the option to only worship the parts of Jesus that we know the best or that we like the best. That's not an option on the table for us. Because when you do that, you're no longer worshiping Jesus. You're worshiping a God that you've created that best suits your needs. And you fashioned him to be able to perfectly meet you there. And you know what it, the Bible calls it when you worship something that you've created? It calls that idolatry. It's in the Ten Commandments. When we put something above God, something else. And that buffet Jesus that we kind of piece together, that buffet Jesus can never challenge you. Because he isn't truly your Lord. And ultimately, he won't even be interesting that long. Because that's not the real Jesus. So this morning, as we close this series on encountering Jesus, 
what it means to encounter the risen Christ. If we've seen at the end of John, and then we jumped over to Luke 24 and Acts 1, these encounters that people had with the risen Christ. I want us to end here in this series, looking at Revelation 1, at the returning Christ, to give us a full picture of exactly who the Jesus is that we claim to worship. Now, real quick, the context as to what in the world is happening in Revelation, the final book in the Bible. This book was written by John, so the same apostle that wrote the Gospel of John that we've been walking through the last year and a half. He's writing this book to encourage local churches there in the area. Churches, many of them that he pastored, because he's now been stranded later in his life on this island called Patmos, and he's left there to die. And it's here late in his life, stranded on this island, that Jesus gives him a revelation of who Jesus is and what he will do when he returns. So this book is filled with imagery and apocalyptic literature and a lot of weird stuff. But at its core, it's meant to encourage local churches, just like ours. So with that in mind, you can grab your Bible, and we'll be in Revelation 1 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one of the ones there uh, in the seats next to you. Um, take that with you if you don't have one. That's our gift to you. Uh, we'll be in John, uh, Revelation chapter 1. We'll be in verses 9 through 18 this morning. Uh, the Bible's next to you. That's on page 883. Page 883. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the large numbers. The verse numbers are the smaller ones. So we'll be in chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. Hear these words from John, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write down what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." So this is the passage we're in, maybe a little bit different than typically where we go on a Sunday morning. But as we look through, there's four different things I want us to kind of see in this text as we walk through it. First, I want us to see how John relates, how John relates, verses 9 through 11. Second, I want us to see how Jesus returns in verses 12 through 16. Third, I want to see how John then reacts in the first half of verse 17, 17a. And finally, see how Jesus responds in the last half of verse 17 and 18. So those are kind of the mile markers we'll be moving through today, those four different moments. We'll try to move quickly through the first half. We can uh, sit in a little bit longer in the last half. So first, how John relates, verses 9 through 11, this first paragraph. John here, remember, is writing to a set, a group of local churches. You see that in verse 11. 
the voice being Jesus, Jesus told John, hey, write what you see, everything I'm about to show you, this revelation, write it down in a book and send that book to these seven churches that exist right now. You know them, you've been there, you've pastored them, send them to these churches to encourage them. So the question then is, how does John see himself in relation to these churches? This is what I want us to sit real quick before we move on. I think it's super important to see how John sees himself in relation. In verse 9, look at what John calls himself as he's looking and writing to these churches. He says, I, John, your brother and your partner. So John's writing to these churches, and John's fundamental view of himself in relationship to the people in these churches is a brother and a partner. And we've talked about this before. I don't know what, what tradition you grew up in, if you grew up in the church at all. Uh, I grew up Southern Baptist, and so there was a lot of Brother Jims and Sister Carla's and uh, Brother Hanks, and you, you kind of think, oh, that's kind of like an old school Southern Baptist-y thing to do, but, but at its heart, it's rooted in this truth, that once you enter into the family of God and you become a Christian, you enter into a family in which we relate to one another as brother and sister. There is no hierarchy. We have one father, and we are all brother and sister together. And so John here, as he's relating to these churches and these people, these brand new churches that have got started up, John sees them as that he is their brother. He is their partner. He's not an administrator of the sacraments primarily. He's not a pastor primarily. He's not a disciple. Friends, he's not even an apostle to them. Realize, if there was anybody who could be on a different realm, it would be John. He was the beloved disciple, the one that Jesus loved. And John doesn't take that. He instead goes, I am your brother. I am your partner. We are on the same playing field doing the same ministry together. Sure, God has gifted and called us to different things and given us different personalities and called us to different offices within the church, but ultimately we are all called brothers and sisters and partners. So understand, my relationship to you guys is not, there's not this separation between clergy and laity. There's not this gap that's there. We are brothers and sisters together. I am your partner in the ministry here. And God has set me aside here to be able to preach the word on Sundays, but we are partnering together for the ministry that's happening here in South Lake County to help people take their next steps towards Christ. This is not a spectator sport. I am on the team together as we move forward. So first, that's how John relates. He relates to these churches as a brother and a partner. Now, secondly, how Jesus returns then. So as John is going to write down this vision, the, this vision and revelation begins then in verse 12 as he sees this picture of Jesus returning. And it's interesting as we see this picture of this man with a long robe, a golden sash, his hairs were white like Gandalf, I mean like snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze refined in the furnace, his voice was like the roar of many waters, from his mouth, his, from his mouth, just want to make sure everyone's, from his mouth, a sword's coming out. This is the image that John has as Jesus returns and his face was shining like the sun in full strength so imagine interacting with this and encountering this we get an image that's similar to this later in the book of revelation in revelation 19 we're going to jump around to a few different uh, references feel free to flip your bible if you'd like to and impress the people next to you but don't feel like you have to uh, we'll have them all up on the screen you can write them down and look at them later so there's a similar image as we see jesus in revelation 19 verses 11 through 16 where John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, again like Gandalf, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. 
And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Friends, this is Jesus that John is describing here. One day when Jesus will return again, and as the Apostles' Creed says, to judge the living and the dead. This is the image of Jesus coming back to judge. It is a terrifying image. I don't know about you, but I I begin to see this described as a man with a sword coming out of his mouth and his clothes are dripping in blood. It's horrifying. Listen, not not all of us grew up in South Lake County and are used to this kind of stuff. Uh, This is weird. And it's terrifying. And you see that there's this image of Jesus that often we don't have painted in our minds. This isn't what we run to when we think of what Jesus is like. But we see here in Revelation that when he comes, he will be like this. And he will come in glory and he will come in judgment. And all those that are in their sin, when they see him, they will stand in terror. He may say, no, 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 that's not my Jesus. My Jesus would never scare anyone just by looking at him. Friends, if that's you, then your Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. And your Jesus is far too safe. Just look at how John reacts in verse 17 when he sees this image of Jesus returning. The third, how John reacts, we see in the first half of 17. As he sees this image of a man coming uh, on a horse, sword out of mouth, Um, robe dripped in blood, face shining in full strength. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He's terrified, wondering, is he coming for me? Am I going to have to now stand before him in my sin and have to somehow give an account for all the things that I've known I've done? I can feel the holiness of God running towards me right now. And I know my sin, and I know what's going to happen when those two meet. And listen, it isn't just John here. We see this same kind of reaction throughout the Bible when people see Jesus in all of his glory. Right, so to jump back earlier in the Old Testament, we see Isaiah 6. And Isaiah has this similar kind of revelation of Jesus In the year that King Uzziah died, I, talking about Isaiah, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings and two covered his face. And with two he covered his feet and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And what's Isaiah's response? And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am a lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now John tells us in his gospel, in John 12, that the, the image that Isaiah sees here is in fact Jesus. And he shrinks back as he sees and encounters the holiness and the glory of Jesus Christ 
with no veil. And immediately he begins to shrink back, going, I'm a man of unclean lips. I cannot be here. Similar later in Matthew 17, when we have the, I thought that was my microphone. I was like, that's the weirdest noise I've ever heard. That was just Andrew sneezing. <laughs> Sounded like a baby elephant. That's fine. <laughs> uh, similar in Matthew 7. I don't know how you recover from that. Anyway, similar in Matthew 17. We get this story of the Mount of Transfiguration um, as, as Jesus takes three of his disciples up on this mountain uh, and he's transfigured. His humanity is pulled back and his divinity begins to shine through. And these three disciples see Jesus in all of his glory. In similar language, it says that his face and his clothes were shining like the sun. And Peter, as he's seeing this, he's like, hey, let's camp or let's, do, let's, let's hang out here. Let's, let's set up camp. And as he was still speaking, verses 5 and 6, as Peter was still speaking, when, behold, a bright cloud then overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Friends, there's this pattern that we see throughout the Bible, that whenever a sinful humanity comes into the presence of a holy Jesus, the result is fear. It's not just fear, it's terror. I'm not worthy to come in. Falling on their faces as though terrified. Or John in Revelation falling on his face as though dead. Now why? Why that reaction? John and Peter and James and Isaiah, they all understood the same two things the moment that they walked into that room. or The moment that they encountered the holiness and the glory of Jesus. The first thing that they knew is they knew that he was holy. And the second thing that they knew is that they knew that they were not. And they felt that immediately. And whenever those two things come in contact with one another, the reaction then is fear. Holiness coming into the presence of sin will devour. That's what we see throughout the Bible. If you ever wonder why in the Old Testament there's so many strict rules and regulations for the temple and how to worship God, it's because God is holy and there can be no sin in his presence. That's not for God's sakes. That's for whoever's sake walks into that room. Because if you walk in in the midst of your sin into the holy presence of God, then he will devour you. That's why we see even in the Old Testament, the, the room where God's presence dwelt, his holiness, was called the Holy of Holies. And no one walked into that room except the high priest once a year, and he would go have to go through a number of rituals and ceremonies to make sure that he was ceremonially clean so he could walk into that room. And even then, they would tie a rope around his ankle just in case he missed something and walked in and was struck dead the moment that he walked in. And people knew that they couldn't go in after him because if they walked in after him, then they too would die. And so if that happened, then they could just pull him out and then go on to the next high priest. That's what happens whenever sinful people walk into the presence of a holy God. It's dangerous. And God's care for us is to try to keep us from that reality because we cannot stand on our own. And that's why in each of these moments, people are terrified. They felt it. There was something great happening in that moment. Even if they didn't know it in their mind, they could feel it. Right, it reminds me of the time a couple weeks ago when I went and saw Avengers Infinity War. Now listen, I warned you about a month and a half ago that there were going to be a lot of Marvel illustrations coming. 
uh, a lot of references to the Avengers and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And if you didn't believe me, I, try, I tried to warn you. So I'm not quite over it yet to where there will come a day. I also promise there will be a day when we'll stop talking about Marvel. But it's just so good. So we can't quite get out of the woods yet. But there was this moment when I went and saw it. And let me just also kind of full disclosure here. I love the movies. I love the story. But I'm not a true fan. I don't have the comic books. I haven't read them. I don't know all the different story arcs of what could possibly be coming next. So understand, if you're a true fan here, that's not what I'm trying to claim. I thoroughly enjoy the movies. And I quote them often and use them in sermon illustrations as well. But I'm not to that level. But I did, when I went and saw the newest Avengers, me and a friend of mine, we went on Thursday night, so the night before it actually came out. This was called Preview Night. Uh, Went out there at 11 p.m., right? I don't know how movie theaters started this. Movies used to be released on Friday, and now all of a sudden there's this extra preview night that you can come to. It's just a great way to make money, and I fell for it, but that's fine. Uh, And so I go at 11 o'clock, Thursday night, and the largest screen in Central Florida at the Regal Point IMAX. And I walk in, and I look around, and I am out of place. I have on a Captain America t-shirt, and listen, that paled in comparison to what other people were wearing. And I'm not just talking costumes. I'm talking wigs. Like, Thor, I'm like, is that Chris Hemsworth right there? Is Thor watching the movie with me? And we sit in there, and these people are true fans. They know every detail of every Marvel piece of information that there is to know. And we're sitting there watching the movie, and there's this scene where, no spoilers, this is in the preview, so don't worry. There's this scene that Thor has lost his great hammer from the movie before. He has no weapon now, so he needs a new one. So the new weapon that's forged is kind of like this hammer-axe hybrid thing that can do incredible lightning things. Anyway, it's very, very interesting. Um, and so he goes and gets this new weapon, and he goes, it's made, he picks it up, it's this great moment, and he looks at the guy that made it, this dwarf, he looks at the dwarf that made it, he said, what's it called? And the dwarf looks at him and he says, its name is Stormbreaker. And I didn't have a clue what it was called, Stormbreaker, I don't know, but when he said that, everyone in the audience stood up and started clapping. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm just like, yeah, yeah, Stormbreaker! I didn't have a clue what was going on, but in that moment, I could, I could feel there is something significant to that name. I don't entirely even intellectually know what it is, but I feel the weight of what's happening here. And so there's, there's a whole backstory that I found out later. But anyway, regardless, even though I didn't know in the moment, I felt there in that scenario, there was something heavier happening. There was something weightier happening in that moment. And it's like what happens here with John and Peter and James and Isaiah as they walk into the presence of God, even though they may not even theologically or intellectually be able to articulate it, when they walk into his presence, they feel that something greater is happening here and they fall as though dead. They are terrified. They feel God is holy and we are not. Friends, Jesus is a lot of things, but one thing that he is not is safe. I can't wait to read one of my favorite um, books is the Chronicles of Narnia, in particular the most famous one, the first one that C.S. Lewis wrote, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I cannot wait till Millie's old enough to be able to comprehend words and to be able to read that with her. It's such an incredible story as Lewis lays out this kind of image of the gospel and who Jesus is. And there's this one scene in particular in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe the, um, where Susan and Lucy are two kids that walk into this enchanted world called Narnia. And there are these creatures and animals that can talk. So we're about to talk about talking beavers and lions. So if you haven't read it, don't be creeped out or weirded out. 
uh, these kids walk into this wardrobe, into this magical land called Narnia, and Susan and Lucy are two of the kids, and they begin to talk to these two beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, very aptly named. And these beavers begin to tell them about the lion, and they tell them that his name is Aslan. And as they're asking questions back and forth, it gets to a point where Susan and Lucy both are imagining, as they hear this description, they imagine this incredible man. And so they ask, Mr. Beaver, is is Aslan a man? And Mr. Beaver responds, he says, Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought that he is a man. So is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Friends, it's important for us to understand that as we encounter Jesus, he is not safe. He is the lion of Judah who will one day return to judge the living and the dead. And if we are left in our sin to encounter encounter him then, it will not go well. He is not safe. And we begin to see in these images in Revelation, we begin to see what it is that we deserve, what our sin calls for, that God in his holiness and his justice and his righteousness, when he returns, he will one day deal with sin once and for all if it has not already been dealt on the cross. And friends, what we deserve, for each and every one of us, we've fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. There's no man here who's walked perfectly. And what that deserves then from our holy God is wrath and judgment. And friends, it is terrifying to think about standing before him on our own. And so you may walk in here and go, well, that's incredibly depressing. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Thanks, Caleb. But friends, I love you too much to not talk about this. It's important for us as we dive in to see, is Jesus in fact the one that we're worshiping in our minds, the Jesus of the Bible, in fullness, in totality? So if you're here and you haven't been here often, or maybe maybe even you don't go to church very much, and this is kind of your first jump back into church, you're like, great, this is just one of those hellfire and brimstone guys that I've heard about, the stereotypes that I see on movies and hear about. Why would you spend so much time on this? Why would you talk about this? It just seems like the stuff that you hide and you don't tell people till later on. But friends, let me tell you two reasons, two reasons why I think it's important to talk about this, to see Jesus as he returns to be the judge of the living and the dead, what happens to us if we are in our sin and encounter him when he returns. Two reasons. One, I want to talk about this because it's in the Bible. So one of the things is we preach uh, expositorily through the scriptures, we're not going to jump over the parts that we don't like. We will walk through and believe that God has revealed this and that every single word is good. That we don't have anything to be ashamed of in here. So one, we want to make sure we teach it because God's not ashamed of himself. And so we shouldn't be either. But secondly, understanding this, understanding what it is that we deserve from God 
will grow our amazement at how Jesus actually responds to us if we turn to him. Well, how does Jesus respond if we believe in him? That's a great question. Let's move on to point four, how Jesus responds. So John falls on his face as though dead. But look at Jesus' response at the end of 17. I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I'm the first and the last, the living, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. That Jesus, as he comes in this kind of magnificent vision, this warrior king coming back to judge the living and the dead, sword coming out of his mouth, blood dripping off his robe, John falls on his face as though dead, and Jesus comes and he bends down. And notice what he doesn't do. Right? Because isn't it interesting that John's response here is to a Jesus that he knows. John knew Jesus. And not only just knew him, he was his disciple. Not only his disciple, he was one of his three disciples. Not only one of his three disciples, he was the one whom Jesus loved. He loved Jesus and Jesus loved him. But when John saw him, he fell on his face as though dead. And notice what Jesus doesn't do. When he comes and encounters John laying there on the ground, Jesus doesn't go, hey, hey, John. John, seriously, you wrote a whole gospel about what was going to happen, and you're scared now? Come on, like, get your stuff together. You knew this was going to happen. Remember the whole thing about me dying on the cross that you wrote about in your book, chapter 18? Nothing, none of that ringing any bells. What are you doing afraid right now? Get up. John, come on, stop being an idiot. That's not how he responds. Jesus comes, and he goes, John, hey. And notice he reaches out. I love this detail. He reaches out his hand and he touches him. He says, you have nothing to be afraid of. For you are mine and I am yours. This is not a situation that you have to dread. Fear not. For the death that you fear, I have overthrown. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. So all the fear that it could hold over you, I now hold the keys to death itself in my hand. It has no claim on you at all, for I've placed my claim on you. And you do not have to fear judgment because I took all the judgment that you deserved in your place. So this is not your reality, John. Stand up and fear not. I find it interesting that there's similar reactions in each of the stories that we read earlier. In Matthew 17, after the disciples had fallen on their face and were terrified, it says, but Jesus came and touched them. Same thing. Touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Same thing. Jesus comes and he says, hey, guys, listen, you don't have to be afraid. Lift your eyes. Don't be afraid. Because for those that love Jesus, that follow him both as Savior and Lord, Jesus will come to you, not in terror, but in tenderness. And we can't fully appreciate that until we understand what it is that we deserved. Until we understand that this warrior king who will come and deal with sin once and for all is a holy and just judge. That what we deserved in our sin and in our rebellion was to stand before him and to be devoured, to take on the wrath of God for our sins that we deserve. That's what was coming for us. 
For in that scene in Revelation 1 and Revelation 19, we were at the end of that trail, and that warrior was coming right for us. That judge was coming right for us. But instead, if you've turned and trusted in Christ, you have nothing to fear. He comes in tenderness. He comes with a gentle hand on your shoulder. And he says, fear not. When he sees John here terrified, he bends down and tells him, John, don't be afraid. You know me, and even more importantly, I know you. So why? Why do we talk about this? Because I think it's important for us to understand and appreciate what it is that we've actually received from Jesus. I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again because it's so helpful for me. I don't know if you're big into petting zoos at all. Probably not because they smell awful. I don't know what it is. There's like a petting zoo candle or something that they have because they all smell the same and they all smell terrible. Anyway, you go to a petting zoo and they give you that kind of like mush that's like some form of carbon particles placed together that I guess they call food and they put it in your hand. You can go then and give it to the animals and they'll come up and they'll eat the food off your hand. And if you've ever imagined, I want you to try to imagine this hypothetical with me. Imagine walking into a petting zoo, paying, you know, a couple bucks, getting some of the mush on your hand. You walk in and all of a sudden you see this like small little lamb frolicking over in the corner. That's a cute little lamb. I'll name him Harry. Harry the lamb. I'm going to go feed Harry. And so you walk over, you bend down, this cute little lamb's kind of like nudging at your shoulder, and it's a sweet moment, and he bends down and licks the food off your hand. It's a precious moment. But all of a sudden then, from behind you, you begin to hear people begin to scream, and you, you turn, and a lion has gotten out of the zoo and has now found its way into the very room that you're in, and everyone else is gone, and it's just you, Harry, and the lion left. And you're in the corner, and all of a sudden this lion begins to slowly walk towards you. And right when he gets inches away from your face, he begins to open up his mouth, and you see his fangs begin to drip with saliva. And you know what's about to come, and you're just standing there shaking, and all of a sudden he lets out this huge roar, and you begin to just shake, terrified, and all of a sudden you feel this gentle lick from the lion's mouth. Take the food from your hand, and then run away. Let me ask you, which of those two animals are you more grateful bent down and licked the food off your hand? Hoping it's a lion. If not, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> no, it's the lion. Why? Because you know that with a lion, what it is that you should have gotten and you got something else. And it creates this sense of gratitude that you're even alive. With a lamb, you go, that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to gently nudge my shoulder and gently lick the food off my hands. Friends, my concern for so many people in the church today is we view Jesus as this sweet, precious little lamb that, of course, he forgives me. He's supposed to forgive me. As Jesus, who wouldn't forgive me? It's what he does. He walks around just gently forgiving everyone. But it's important for us to understand that he is not just the great, true, and better Passover lamb. Friends, he is also the lion of Judah, the Bible describes him as. And he will one day come back to devour all those still in sin, to judge them. And when we understand what it is that we should have gotten, that that should have been us, but if we believe in him, that is not our reality. Instead, he will come and gently lick the food off our hands. When we understand that, it will create in your heart so much more gratitude and amazement at the grace that God has shown you. And we stand back and we worship him. 
Until we fully understand what it is we deserved, we will not be able to fully appreciate what it is we've been given. Until we fully understand what it is that we deserved, we will not be able to fully appreciate what it is that we have been given. Grace and forgiveness and mercy. No condemnation. No judgment. If you turn to him, then he takes all of that in your place. My friends, if you're here this morning and you haven't turned to him, if you do not trust him, then hear what is your future if you do not. That God has to deal with sin. He is a good judge. And so he either do it there in that moment when he returns or whenever you die, or he will take care of it through Jesus on the cross. This is the beauty of what happens in the gospel. That Jesus comes and he dies in our place. That's what we mean by that. That Jesus takes on our sin, stands in our place, and takes our punishment. The wrath that was meant for us was poured out on him. So when we believe in him and trust in him, then that's why we can say confidently that there is therefore now no condemnation because it has already been dealt with on the cross and God will not punish the same thing twice. But if you have not trusted in him, then friends, this is what lies ahead. And for us, the hope, then, if you are a Christian, the other concern I have is you may leave here and go, well, well, shoot, now I'm nervous to meet Jesus. That is not your future. But not only is that not your future, but seeing him face to face, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, that is the greatest longing of our soul. When we finally get to see our creator in all of his glory, in all of his holiness, face to face, you will then in that moment feel your longing satisfied like nothing in this world ever could. And finally, you will be able to do what you were created to do, glorify and worship him and enjoy him forever. Sin is removed. It is gone. So you may say, well, what changes? Does he change? No, he doesn't change. We do. But in that moment when we come before him, our sin is removed. As John writes in 1 John 3, 1 and 2, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Listen. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. What changes is us. As either when we die or when he returns, then we are, uh, our, our sin is removed, we are made pure, and we are glorified. And we then get to see him as he is, face to face, not in terror, but in tenderness. It is the great longing that we have and that we strive for. Later in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a scene where the chi- children finally meet Aslan for the first time. Finally, face to face, they get to meet this lion. And it's not until about 70% of the way through the book. It's later on. They're at this large stone table, and suddenly they hear the sound of music over to their right. And turning in that direction, they saw what they had come to see. And Aslan stood in the center of a crowd of creatures who had grouped themselves round him in the shape of a half moon. But as for Aslan himself, the beavers and the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And then they found they couldn't look at him at all and went all trembly. 
but his voice was deep and rich, and somehow it took all the fidgets out of them, and they now felt glad and quiet, and it didn't seem awkward to them to stand there and say nothing. Because those children understood that at that moment, something can be both good and terrible at the exact same time. My hope for us this morning is that we will realize the same thing as we stand in the presence of the returning Christ, the holy judge of the living and the dead, our warrior king, that we can see what we deserved and stand amazed at what we've been given. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for not leaving us in our sin to have to fear or worry about when we will see your face. God, give us a longing to be able to see that moment when we will stand before you with no sin and see you face to face in all of your glory and worship you for eternity. God, help us to be able to see a full picture of, of who Jesus is and what it is that we deserve to praise him and worship him as our savior, our king, as the judge. God, we love you and we thank you so much for not leaving us in our sin to have to stand before that on our own. But you came and died in our place and took our punishment for us. Help us now to live in that freedom as we continue to worship. God, we pray all this in Christ's beautiful, holy, and powerful name. Amen. 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 Amen.